All right, that's subtle. That's a subtle bumper. I hope you're ready. So, uh, hey, everybody, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, go ahead and grab that. We are going to be spending some time in, you guessed it, Nehemiah. So we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah for a few weeks. I want to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 1, in just a bit. So you can go ahead and find your way to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Then uh, we'll, we'll jump into the text in just a few minutes. So Vaughn Forrest, uh, it is so good to be with you again this morning. It's good to see you. It's good to hear you worship. It is good uh, just to be in the room with you. If you're joining us online, uh, thank you for doing that. You could have you done anything this morning, but instead you are spending a few moments with us. So thank you for doing that. All right. Deep breath, everybody. Can you kind of sense it? Like it's, uh, you know, you, you woke up this morning and mercifully, like the weather is, is turning, falls kind of here. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's not a thousand degrees. And so it feels incredible outside. It's crisp. I love this time of year. I love this weather. It's starting to feel a little bit like fall. We're starting a new series. So it feels like a, a real like changing of seasons. And I love that. Um, so the book of Nehemiah, as we get started this morning, uh, the book of Nehemiah, uh, I need you to play along, okay? I wanna make sure as we get started, before we get too far down the road, I gotta make sure here in the room, uh, joining us online, if it, I wanna make sure you're with me, all right? So we're gonna participate a little bit. We're gonna play along. So I think in general, just in, you know, as I think about life and, and really uh, the kinds of people that make up uh, just the world, I think that there's really two kinds of people. And this, this is a dangerous game to play, but I think there's really two kinds of people. Uh, there are people who want to hear either the good news first or the bad news first, all right? You either prefer, if somebody has something to tell you, you wanna hear either the good news or the, uh, or the bad news first. So I wanna know you. I wanna get to know you a little bit uh, this morning. So we did this with the, the 930 service and they played right along. So they set the standard, all right? So this is not, uh, this is not for somebody else. This is because I really wanna know what kind of people you are. So if you are, which are you? Friend, family member comes up to you, your boss calls you, your spouse texts you. Uh, they begin the conversation like, hey, I've got some things that I need to share with you. And they ask the question, so do you want the good news or the bad news? You want the good news first or the bad news first? How do you respond? So if you are like, I want the bad news first, just get it out of the way. Don't just raise your hand. All right, raise your hand. I want the bad news first. Interesting, interesting. This is very similar. Keep them up. I want to see all the pessimists in the house. All right, no, I'm just kidding. All right, that's good. That's good. That's all right. It actually, uh, that tracks well with our text today. So, but uh, if you're a little different, you're just kind of, you're, you wake up in the morning and you genuinely like, you're happy about it being morning and you get out of bed and you're just optimistic about life. And you're like, you know what? No, let's delay it a little bit. If you want the good news first, good news people, raise your hand. I see you. I see you there. All right. How many of you though are like, hey, listen, no news is good news. All right. No, just leave me alone. All right. I want to be in my room, do my work. And all right. Fair enough. Fair Fair enough. So I don't know. I don't know what makes us like that. I don't know if it's a personality profile. I don't know if it has to do with your parents or your upbringing, your history, or just life experience. I don't know why we tend to lean one way or the other. But here's the thing. At some point in life, bad news, just as a living and breathing person today, just walking around, at some point, bad news is unavoidable. 
Like you just can't not do sad. You are going to have to endure something that you wish you didn't have to endure. People are gonna say words that you wish that you could unhear. You're gonna have to deal with a situation that you would rather skip or move on quickly into the next season. And you know this, this is true in so many different areas of life. Uh, You know, parents, if you are at the stage of life where your kids are trying out for things, you absolutely know this because there is not a longer or more tense moment than from the moment they get out out of your car and they're walking up to the door of the school or they're walking up to the door of the gym to see if they made it. Did they make the team? Did they make the squad? Were they cast in the role that they were going for? Did they actually get, did they pass it or were they cut? And you know, like you may not really understand a lot of the songs that we sing around here, but you know that when your kid is trying out for something, you're like, I'll invent prayers. I'll call on the God of Jacob and Mary and Moses and I'll call on all of them. You'll just, you'll pray those prayers. You will, you will talk to the Lord intensely because you know, you want them to feel good and accomplished, but there is like, there's a, there's a time coming or your kid, your child, the one that you love, that you are raising up in the way they should go, if you remember last week. But there will come a moment where the school that they applied for, the person that they ask out on a date, or a team that they try out for, a show that they want to be a part of, they'll get bad news. You know this too, that like you drop your car off at the auto shop, and you know, you're just kind of waiting to hear the diagnosis from the mechanic, and he calls you, and you're like, skip it, bro. Just kind of, I don't want to talk about the weather. I don't really want to talk about Saturday college football. Just tell me, like, what's the damage? Just get to it. Tell me how much money you're going to take me for. Or you have, in a more serious sense, like you have some, some news that you're waiting, like you have that number from your doctor like saved in your phone. And you know that like no matter what's going on around you, how busy you might be or the conversation that you might be in, that when the doctor calls to tell you, hey, here's the results of the test, here's the diagnosis, here's what this means. Some point along the way, you or somebody you love is gonna be told that you need to come back in or you need to go see a specialist or that this thing is a little more serious than we thought it was or we didn't quite catch it as early as we wish we would have. All of us at some point or another, being human-sized people are going to hear news that we wish we didn't hear and our response is everything. So Nehemiah is the name of this series, and it's, a, uh, it's drawn from the book of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Uh, and so Nehemiah begins with the main character, and the main character is the author of this book and is, you guessed it, Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah, he begins his story and really the story of what happens in the pages of. Uh, this story begins with him getting, receiving, being told some bad news. Nehemiah is the recipient of this communication and the bad news of what is told to Nehemiah, that bad news is what kicks off this amazing story. The story of Nehemiah is a story of rebuilding and redemption and rescue. And I love that. I love that we're going to take some time over the next few weeks. I, I'm, I'm all for like some topical series here and there where we kind of bounce around the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, you know, poetry, history, narrative, uh, prophecy. I'm all for like topical series that speak to felt needs, but there's something that you can only grasp about the narrative arc of scripture, the story that God is telling, not just one story at a time, but the overarching story of the scripture is best understood when you walk slowly through the Bible. I I love that we get to spend some time not just in sermons, 
but in a series. And so in some ways, this is sort of like the exposition or the introduction, kind of like I'm gonna tell you what I'm gonna tell you. But whatever the case is, I think that God does have something to say to every single one of us. Whether you're joining us online, you're in the room, front to the back, God has something to speak to you today. So I hope that you found Nehemiah chapter one by now. Let me go ahead and read. I'm gonna read three verses. Uh, This is how the story begins. The words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. Verse three, and they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. This is God's word. And the story of Nehemiah, and I don't know how familiar you are with it. I don't know if you have stumbled across this book in your personal Bible study or in a small group, or you have been taught through the book of Nehemiah in a sermon series. But the story of Nehemiah, if you're not familiar with it, this story is fascinating. This is a fascinating book of the Old Testament. And it's not just the story of the book of Nehemiah, but actually the story of the person himself. Nehemiah is fascinating. Nehemiah was a real person. This is not a fairy tale. This is not a parable. This is not made up. This is recorded history. These events actually took place. Nehemiah begins locating itself at a specific point in history in a specific location on the globe. These events that we are going to learn about over the next few weeks, they actually happen to real people. And Nehemiah was an actual Jewish person and he did an extraordinary thing. And what I think is legitimately one of the best leaders, I think Nehemiah is one of the best leaders that you could ever learn about in any context, religious or not, Christian, non-Christian, whatever the case is, Nehemiah is a great leader. But what's extraordinary about the book of Nehemiah is that there's really nothing extraordinary that happens in the book of Nehemiah. What do I mean? I mean, there's no miracles. Like there's no miracles in the book of Nehemiah. There's no parting of a Red Sea. There's no destruction of a whole people through the angels' armies. Uh, There's no breaking of bread and feeding 5,000 people. There's no healing of disease. There's really no miracles in this whole story. And what's remarkable about the story of Nehemiah is that the whole book is more about method than miracles. The story of Nehemiah is is about method, not miracles. There are no miracles. The story of this part of the scripture is about mission and it's about vision and it's about the life changing power of just showing up over and over again. Just just keep showing up, just keep getting up out of bed, just keep making yourself present. You could say about the character of Nehemiah that his greatest ability was not supernatural, but Nehemiah's greatest ability was his availability. And what's interesting though for us, and we're gonna look at the scriptures really close this morning. What's interesting is that in just one verse, we find some really crucial details that kind of set the stage. Now, 
I know if you're here for the first time or if you're still kind of kicking the tires uh, about this church or myself, you hear we're starting a series where we're gonna walk through the entire book of Nehemiah. And here in the first week, you hear this guy stand on stage and say, we're going to make it through three verses and really just focus on one verse. And I wonder if you go, I don't know if this is such a good idea. Like maybe you kind of wrote a note and passed it over to your wife and you were like, is this, how long is this gonna last? Like how long are we gonna be here today? All right, but just stay with me, all right? Because today we have to be clear, crystal clear on what the bad news was that Nehemiah got from his brother and his friends. And the reason we have to be clear is that the significance of the bad news is more than meets the eye. In fact, so if you're following along on your phone, or your iPad, and you can scroll and you can see there's multiple chapters. There's a lot more left in the context of this story. If you're in your Bible, you see there are multiple pages that come just after the first three verses of Nehemiah. And what I'd say is this, faithfully, that the entire story, the rest of this book, the resulting text of this story of Nehemiah, th those pages, that, uh, that remaining text, all of that is the, that's the cause found in verse three and the effect is the rest of the story. Like if you don't have verse three, you're gonna be very lost as to what Nehemiah is doing, but not just what, but why. Like why is it that Nehemiah is so concentrated and passionate? So here's what I'm saying. We need to know not just what the bad news was that Nehemiah got, we need to know how bad it was. We just, we need to know more than what happened. We need to know why it matters. So the Babylonian army under King Nebuchadnezzar, they have finished their work. They completed this task of utterly destroying Jerusalem. The Babylonian army kidnaps the people of God into exile in 586 BC. What does that mean? God's people are now facing their greatest crisis ever. Like this is a political crisis. This is a spiritual crisis. This is a physical crisis. Like if you imagine that this is not just that they happen to be in an area of the country where they wish they weren't, men, women, children are ripped out of their lives and ripped out of their communities and they're taken as oppressed slaves to go and live and serve under a, another king, a king who does not have the best interest of his people at heart. And these people are going through ridiculous amounts of crisis. And this should make you question some things because they were definitely asking questions. Because who were these people again? They were the Jewish people. These were the covenanted people of God. This land that they were being forced to leave and exit from, this is a promised land. When God came to Abraham in Genesis 15 and said, I will be your God, you will be my people and I will give you a land and that land shall be promised to you and it will be yours forever. Now all of a sudden they have to leave? Well, they're not just asking questions about where's our next meal gonna come from, but who is this God who said he was gonna give us a place to stay and now we've gotta go. This is the land God promised centuries earlier to Abraham where the descendants of Abraham lived for more than 800 years. And now that land, that promised part of God's like, inheritance to his children, that land lay uncovered. That's what exile really means, is that the land is uncovered, it's unprotected, it's not inhabited by the right people. And Abraham's descendants, they're now exiled and kidnapped and they're living in a hostile land. 
So I want you to look at verse three. And verse three is gonna tell us just how bad things have gotten. But we're gonna look at some things in verse three, but we're not gonna go in chronological order, not just how each word falls in the text. We're gonna go in order of importance. And when you look at verse three, you notice that something has happened and the bad news is bad because of what was wrong with the wall. The message that Nehemiah got was that the walls around Jerusalem had been destroyed, that they had been burned with fire. And so there's this, there's this call on Nehemiah's life. The calling on Nehemiah's life is first to rebuild the wall. You're taking notes, write that down. The first call on Nehemiah's life, the call that God makes is a call to rebuild the wall. And I love that. I love that. I love that the Bible decided to include that because the Bible has practical things in it. Now, I don't know if it's because I'm just, I'm a man and I have to fix something in order to feel like I'm making progress and not just understand something and not just hear something, but like I need to do something and make it better. I don't know if that's why I like it, but what's clear of what Nehemiah's brother is saying to him is that he's saying, bro, the walls are gone and that's bad. The walls are broken. They've been destroyed by fire and that matters. Why? Good question. Because when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians, they didn't just tear down the walls. Like this is not just an act of political aggression. By tearing down the walls of Jerusalem, they're opening up this sacred city, God's city for God's people. They're opening it up for occupation from enemies. But not just the city itself, not just homes, because what's inside the city of Jerusalem, it's the temple of God. It's the place where God lives. His presence dwells in this temple. And by destroying the walls, they're opening up the temple for destruction. And the book of Ezra would tell us that the temple had been destroyed too. And God gives Nehemiah a job. God calls Nehemiah to physically do something. He gives Nehemiah work and Nehemiah's work matters. His endeavor matters. Now, this is a quote from Pastor Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor. And I love how he sums up the importance of your work. Because look at me, church. What you do with your hands, what you do with your mind, where you're gonna go tomorrow morning, what you do, what you trade your life for, where you spend your career energy, your work matters. Why? He explains like this, I love this quote. He says, unless there is God, like if God's not there, this doesn't matter. But unless there is God, if the God of the Bible exists and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, and this life is not the only life, but if God exists, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones pursued in response to God's calling, every good endeavor can matter forever. And here's why this is amazing. It's amazing because what God is asking Nehemiah to do is an actual call of God. This is not just to give instructions. This is not just God delaying the inevitable, but what God wants to see take place is the wall that had been destroyed made upright. And this is gonna help a lot of us out this morning, so lean in. I think it's gonna help because so many of us, and I don't know if you're like this, I'm like this, maybe it's, it could be a me thing. I don't think we intentionally get off base in this. But for so many of us, we think our relationship with God, how we interact with God, how we see him, how we talk to him, how we, how we face him, how we, 
how we pray to him, how we praise him, like all these things. We, our, our relationship with God, our eternal security, our forgiveness, sanctification, justification, it's internal. It's so internal. Like everything, like the most important relationship that you can have with any being at any time that will matter forever, that relationship takes place so much in your mind. So much of it is unnoticeable. So much of it takes place just between your ears. And this is not commentary on the practice of. This is not my opinion as to whether or not it's right or wrong. But isn't it interesting that even the ways that we find ourselves in relationship with God, those are internal matters, internal decisions. Like even though the Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouth and believe with our heart that Jesus is Lord, then we will be saved. We know that's true, but the way that we respond to invitations so many times is an internal response. Like at best, it's making eye contact. At best, it's slipping our hand up. Very rarely do you find places where the pastor invites you down the aisle or you just check a box or you just believe, or you nod your head in agreement. So much of your most important decision that you'll make for eternity happens in an unnoticeable way inside your mind. And because so much of our Christian life, and when I say our Christian life, I mean yours and I mean mine. So much of our Christian life is based around what cannot be seen because faith plays such a huge role in how we think about and uh, and how we interact with God. So much is unseen that we can sometimes wonder if God only cares about the unseen. Like we, go, we, we can mistakenly believe that God only cares about what we can't really see, feel, taste, or interact with. That yes, God does care where I spend eternity, but these 80 or so years that I'm gonna spend on planet earth, he's really kind of like, do whatever you want. We think that God only cares about where we're gonna spend forever, not what's going to happen this afternoon. And I wanna gently and charitably say, I don't think he's like that. I don't think that eternity in life forever, I don't think it begins after you die. I think eternal life is something that's ongoing because eternity does mean forever forward, but it also means forever backwards. And God is concerned not just with what goes on between your ears, but what you do with your hands as well. And the call for Nehemiah to rebuild what was broken, God was saying to his people and to the world that there will be an outward sign there will be a noticeable example that things that are broken are gonna be, they're gonna be made right. What was broken is gonna be rebuilt. And man, that's the kind, that, that's who he is. That's a, it's almost as if that's an attribute of God that he can't help but express because the God of the Bible is the God who makes sad things untrue. He's a God who makes sick people well. He's the God who brings dead things back to life. And we love that. We love those stories. And it's yes, and it's amen. And to God be the glory. All those things are true. And look at me. God is concerned about your eternity. He is concerned about your internal relationship with him. And God is not absent. He is not withdrawn from what's going on with his people right now. And that includes you. 
And this is all over the book of Nehemiah, and it's gonna be all over our series together this fall. God is not just interested in where you're gonna spend forever. God is invested in building and establishing his kingdom and building his church today. When the disciples asked Jesus and they said, teach us how to pray, he taught them to pray thus, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Nehemiah is told that the walls are broken and they need to be rebuilt and that the people are feeling it. Like the people are not just casual observers that happen to be living in a different spot than they had been living before. Yes, there's a call to rebuild. There's also a call on his life to redeem the reputation. There's a call to redeem the reputation. And we're not gonna spend a ton of time here because I think that chapter four is really where you'll find a lot of this idea about what it means to redeem the reputation of a people. But I just simply wanna say this, to honor and to restore. Okay, this is not in your notes. But to honor and to restore a person's good name, that is surely the the work of the Holy Spirit that God is concerned about how you are known. He is concerned about how his people are known. He is concerned that his people are known. And shame keeps us from being known. Shame keeps us in hiding. Shame keeps us in the dark. Shame tells us to hide. It was in shame that the first couple in the Garden of Eden sought to cover their nakedness because shame tells you to step back out of the light. The shamed person, it watches, it looks, it almost expects rejection from the people they need to care about them. Shame robs a person, it robs you. Shame robs us of our concentration It robs us of our ability to focus on the task at hand. Shame leads us to feel feelings like self-contempt and self-disgust and self-despair. May I add that those feelings are not the fruit of the Spirit. Shame, in its most destructive sense, shame is what stops courage. Y'all write that down. Shame stops courage. It would be a courageous act for the people of God to go back to where God had told them to stay. But shame discourages you from giving your whole self to anything. It tells you to limit it. It tells you to hold back. Let me tell you something interesting. It's, and this is, not, this is not advice. This is simply commentary. And because I have said over and over again that I want to be known, I, you need to know some things about me that even aren't in the notes, okay? So, uh, there are times that as a pastor, as a person who wants to like spend my life helping people understand Jesus, there are times that, that Saturdays with my family or Saturdays with my wife, we refer to them as Satan Saturdays. And I know, so it's just weird, pray for Brett, all right? So we refer to them as Satan Saturdays and it's because I feel like, I, I mean, I really do. I suspect that when God knows that he wants to like speak through me or that I need to like explain to people what the Bible means or I need to tell them what God is like, that the tendency and the probability for me to say something dumb or to act in a way that is not kind 
whether with my words or with the tone of my words, that likelihood only increases when I'm about to preach. And so there are times on Saturday where it's like, I, I cannot believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. And here's where it shows up. This is the ugliest part of it. It doesn't show up in my boldness or lack thereof to preach. You know where it shows up? When I worship. Like I'll be standing beside my wife, my covenant bride, who knows that I'm an idiot. She knows that. Like there's, she's under no guise of thinking that I'm always and totally awesome. But if, but if the track record is fresh, if like she can still remember and I can still remember, and maybe you're like this too. My thought when we're singing songs like this, even though I know all my life, God has been faithful. There are times when singing about the goodness of God feels hypocritical. Because of why? Because of shame. Because I know that even though God's been faithful my whole life, I haven't. And so for me to close my eyes or to lift my hands or to express publicly that Jesus died for me and I wanna participate in the oldest thing that's ever happened and that's telling God that he's holy, even though I wanna do that with everything I have. You know what keeps me back? You know what holds me back? You know what makes me feel a little bit timid in that moment? It's not fear, it's shame. And the danger for us is we're looking at an old book of the Bible. I said 586 BC and some of y'all went right to sleep. I mean, you're like, that's 2,500 years ago. What could this possibly mean? I mean, I know it's in the Bible, but like, this is a long time. The danger of history, what is it? What's the danger of history? The danger is that over time, we'll forget that these people really experienced trauma. Like this is a real bad thing that happened to real people. And the trauma of their story can be reduced to nothing more than just a footnote in history. Say more about that. Okay, I will. So slavery, human trafficking, oppression, class on class, those are not modern day inventions. That's not a modern day difficulty. For the people of God, for the covenanted, I will be their God, they will be my people. Those people, their reputation is summed up in one tragic word, shame. And this bad news is moving to Nehemiah and it is moving to me and it should be moving to us as Christians. Why? Because as Jesus followers, we don't add shame to anybody's story. You got me? We don't add shame to anybody's story. And the, as the redeemed people of God, we have a savior who the author of Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame and is now seated at the right hand of God. The reputation of God's people needed to be redeemed. They needed for somebody to act on their behalf, to respond to God's call, to actually do something, to act to rebuild, to use their hands for a good work and to make right the reputation that they had found themselves having. And that's true, that's absolutely true. But they needed more than just a wall rebuilt and their reputation righted. They needed somebody to do something about it. Um, I have told you this, I'll tell you all the time. Uh, I have two daughters, which is God's way of sanctifying me. And uh, one of the ways 
that he does that is by uh, the stories, the way that like, there are things that happen in my life and I go, that's, it's, that's you teaching me, all right? And so that's great. But I remember, so when my, uh, when my oldest uh, was like two years old, uh, she had not learned to swim yet and we were at our friend uh, Chip and Wendy Keaton's house and they had just put in this pool and so our small group is all there, you know, we're sitting around the pool and it's like a barbecue. And it's like the pool's done, but it was weird because they got it done at the time of year where it was like, we just kind of had to look at it. We couldn't really jump in it because it was so cold. And so the pool's out there, it's uncovered. And we're just enjoying the fact that like Chip got his pool done and it's great. And my oldest daughter at the time couldn't swim. I remember she was trying to like reach in or try to like grab something or maybe just play with the water or who knows what, all right? Uh, but she, she just falls right in the water, right in the pool. She's two and without, like, without even thinking, this is not a Brett's the hero story because pastors shouldn't tell stories where they're the hero of the story, all right? So but without even thinking, uh, one of my wife's best friends, one, my best friend's wife, uh, one of my dear friend's wife, Stephanie Manise, she just jumps, like doesn't even think, she just jumps right in the pool. She's not in a swimming suit. She's fully dressed, all right? And she just jumps right in the pool, gets to the bottom, grabs Julia, brings her back up. And it was just instantly like, wow, like you love my daughter more than I do. Like that's unbelievable. And it, it wasn't this like, it wasn't this tragic thing. Like my kids will be here in two weeks. And so if you ask them about that, nobody will really remember. Uh, but the reason that stuck out for me is because of what Stephanie didn't do. So you know what she didn't do? She didn't stand at the edge of the pool and go, bet you don't like it down there, do you? Bet you, wish you'd, uh, bet, you, bet you wish you had parents who would give you swimming lessons so you could know what to do in this moment. I bet you wish you would have thought more clearly about the consequences of your actions. And so now if you would just kind of do your best, I know that, I mean, let gravity take over because you, there's still air in your life. You will eventually float to the top. She didn't stand and yell instructions or remind her of rules or try to tell her, like, if you'll just kick your legs, if you'll just kind of, you know, just kind of do this, then you'll make your way. She didn't do any of that. She jumped in, she acted, she rescued. And the call on Nehemiah's life is not just to offer commentary on what has happened to the people of God or even to form an opinion about what's happened to the people of God or to say to the people of God, hey, y'all know this is your fault, right? Because a tragic reminder is for me to tell you that the reason the people were in exile had to do with both their sin and their refusal to repent. Translation, they got what was coming to them. God said, if you don't repent, if you don't change, if you don't behave in a way that I have told you life should be lived, then you will have to leave. Another, another group will come in and they will occupy your land. They were told this over and over and over again. And yet in their sheer disobedience and rebellion, they got what was coming to them. Nehemiah was well within his rights to hear the bad news and go, well, that sounds about right. That makes sense. And he also didn't go back to the people of God and say, hey, listen, I know that we've endured this terrible exile and that now we have to deal with what it means to live in an oppressed land. He didn't go back to them and remind them of all the rules of the Old Testament law and all of the things that were written down in the book of Leviticus that if they'll just do all these things and maybe they'll get what God has better planned for them. He doesn't do any of that. The call on Nehemiah's life is not just to do something about the physical wall or their known reputation. The people need rescue. That's the call. Rescue the people. 
There is a small group left. There is a tiny remnant. A generation or two has passed. And it's important for you to remember, you don't miss this. It's important to know that they weren't let out of exile because they rose up and they defeated their captors. They did not. The Israelites did not defeat Babylon. The Persians did. It was another different empire. Cyrus the Great decides to let the people return and start the process of putting the pieces back together. And you need to understand why this happened because this is, this is so crucial. The reason it happened is because God moved the heart of King Cyrus of Persia. God moved his heart. The same God who hardened Pharaoh's heart in Exodus touched King Cyrus's heart to fulfill the word that he had spoken through his prophets. And that matters. And here's why. The reason that matters and the reason that that's everything is because it demonstrates a foundational truth, not just good for understanding the book of Nehemiah. This is a truth that's helpful for understanding all of scripture. It is God who rescues that's it. Only God rescues. Rebuild, redeem, rescue. These people were broken. Their reputation was broken. Their relationship with God was broken. And now they're living in a generational state of sin and shame, and they need legit, literal help because they're in trouble. And this description of how life is going for the people of God, that is bad news. There's no getting around that. I mean, it, it's not a lie. It's the truth and it's bad. And our God is not unfamiliar with hearing bad news. Our Savior, our Messiah, Jesus, is not unfamiliar with hearing bad news. Not just in prayers from his people. In fact, Jesus got bad news while he was walking around planet earth. There's a story found in John's gospel. John chapter 11, Jesus is out somewhere. He's teaching, he's healing, and somebody runs up to Jesus and tells him that one of his friends, one of his dear friends is, is really sick. And not just kind of sick, like sick, probably going to die. So what Jesus does is not exactly what you would expect. Hearing this bad news, knowing that he could probably do something about it, what Jesus decides to do is so curious because it says in John 11 that he waits around for like two more days that he doesn't instantly just run to what's happening. As Jesus is pulling into just a horrific scene, uh, two sisters, Mary and Martha, they meet him as he's pulling into town, as Jesus arrives, and they are furious. They're, they're angry. One of them actually says, uh, Lord, if you had only been here, like had you not taken your sweet time, had you actually like done something with the news that you received, then maybe, maybe Lazarus would still be alive. Maybe my brother wouldn't have died. You know what Jesus does when he gets bad news in John 11? Shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. He felt. He understood. He identified with people that he loved. More on that next week. But Jesus then walks up to the grave and the Bible tells, you know what, let's just look at it. So let's just put this up on the screen. John 11, starting in verse 38, says this. Band's gonna come out in just a second. We're gonna, we're gonna wrap things up, but I can't not tell you the story. So John eleven thirty eight 38 says that Jesus deeply moved again. 
You know, those words deeply moved, they don't just communicate that he had a frown on his face or one tear trickling down his cheek. The, the phrase deeply moved is meant to communicate the sound of like a raging bull, that this is a mixture of like anger and sadness. Why is he sad? Because his friend is dead. Why is he angry? Because Jesus hated death. He came to defeat death. Deeply moved again, he comes to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, I, I love, man, you know, no have time. Okay, Martha, the sister of the dead man. Martha, Lazarus' sister. Martha is about to say to a member of the Trinity, to God with skin on, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. I, I love that. <laughs> Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around. I love that Jesus is explaining to God why he's praying while he's praying. That he's like, I, I know, I know, I get it, but you know. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. That's it. That's, that's, the, that's the big dramatic, that's what was needed to be said. Three words, Lazarus come out. Dead, live. Verse 44 says, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I wanna say this over and over again over the next few weeks. The point of the story of Nehemiah is not that you would learn some new leadership strategy. It's not for you to learn how to be a better leader. This is not a game plan for developing people or a strategy. That's not why God put Nehemiah in the Bible. And the reason he didn't is because this idea of you looking at Nehemiah and deciding that if you just act like he acts or do what he does, then you can rebuild the walls of your own life, that you can rebuild the reputation of your people, that you can rescue people who need to be rescued. If Nehemiah can do it, so can you. That is so not the gospel. That is so not the point. You are not Nehemiah. You're not. The point of the book of Nehemiah is to show us that there would one day come a true and better Nehemiah named Jesus, who in response to the state the people of God found themselves in, the state that we had rightfully earned, that we had gotten what was coming to us by intentionally breaking the law and heart of God, that state where you and I have been. And some of you, if you're being honest, you're still there that you are in a broken relationship with God. You are in a non-relationship with him. Some of you, you are Christians, but your story, your reputation, how you would describe your life right now is you are sitting in shame, just full of it. Like what do people, what do people know about you? The worst, how's that make you feel awful? What's that keep you from doing anything? You're just sitting in shame. People, 
who are in broken relationship with God, people who are sitting in shame, people who need help, people who need action, people who don't need somebody to tell them what's wrong or to remind them of the rules. That's who God came for. That's who Jesus is after. Jesus steps up to that grave that holds, that holds all the death. The grave holds all the death that you and I have rightfully earned and deeply moved like Lazarus come forth deeply moved. This is the call that Jesus is issuing this moment to you. Dead, live. Do you feel like a dead man? Do you feel, do you feel like your whole story can be summed up in one word and that's shame? Do you desperately need somebody to act because you can't seem to fix yourself. Dead, live. That's the call. What am I saying? I'm saying that's how God rescues. That's the plan that God had for his people in Nehemiah's time. That's the plan that God still has for any of us who would call on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. God rescues by calling. God rescues by calling. Dead, live. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, if your word is true, which it is, would you attach it to our hearts? Those of us who are far from you, who our relationship with you is non-existent or broken. Those of us who are sitting in shame. Those of us who we need somebody to act on our behalf. You can help. You can rescue. You can call us from death to life. And we just have to respond. Help us to do that as best as we know how. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and worship with me?